Good morning. Welcome to worship at Northminster this morning. Whether you're here in person in our sanctuary or viewing this service over our YouTube channel, we're so happy that you are with us. And if you're visiting with us today, we offer you a special welcome and hope that you'll feel uh, free to participate in all aspects of our service, which includes communion. And you can follow the instructions in the order of service for that. Uh, this is God's table and it's open to all people. I will say that one slight change in communion, you will actually be able to pick up your own cup this morning rather than having it handed to you. So we're making a little progress. COVID, of course, is still, uh, un unfortunately, is more rampant now than it has been. Lots, lots of folks with COVID. So anyway, we're trying still to be careful, but, uh, but you can pick up your own cup. Uh, and as always, please, uh, if you feel comfortable doing so, uh, take the attendance register you'll find there in the hymn book holders on the inside aisles and complete that. We would appreciate it. You'll notice this morning that the choir is not wearing robes. I think the first time in my memory in 30-whatever, how many, three years that we've ever not worn robes. And the reason is there's no air conditioning in our educational space and there's no light in our choir room. So for safety's sake, we decided we wouldn't try to, to rumble to find our robes and that sort of thing. So we're, we're, we're robeless this morning. Uh, remember, tonight at 7 is our uh, regular bi-monthly business meeting at which we will be further discussing and voting upon our welcoming and affirming statement. So we hope that you will attend that. Uh, usually that is preceded by potluck supper. Tonight, because of the air conditioning situation, no potluck supper. Okay, Hannah, did I get that okay? Everybody understand? There will be no potluck supper tonight. So sorry for those of you, Marsha, I know, and, and Sandy, who've already prepared your, your things for tonight. But uh, I know they won't hold for two months, but uh, what can we do? Uh, <laughs> And I should have said last week uh, where Debbie Chandler, our director of music, is. Uh, Debbie is in Greece. She'll be returning this next week. Uh, she is leading uh, a, a choir, which is uh, a, a choir of, of combined choirs from the United States, including some members of our Masterworks Chorale here in, in Monroe. So uh, Debbie has been doing this for the last few years, and and uh, obviously it's a great honor for her to, to be invited to do that. She'll be coming back th this week, so we uh, hope that she will have a safe return to us next week. And a big thank you to all of you who've signed up to give or, or have already brought items for our pounding of Jillian and Eric. Eric's here this, again this morning. There are a few items that still have not been signed up for, I think. I didn't check before I came in here. So if you're interested, check out the remaining list on the table in the hall off the narthex. And some of you may rather uh, are also want to give money to help Jillian and Eric with their incidental moving expenses. And so if you would like to do that, please make your checks payable to Northminster uh, or give on Northminster's website and just make sure that you make uh, put in the memo line uh, hand camera pounding or pounding or something so Connie will know uh, what it's for. And if you're giving items or money, please try to do so by next Sunday. 
because Eric and Julian hope to be moving that next week. Uh, her first Sunday here is the 31st, the end of this month. Uh, please remember our mission trunk emphasis for the month. You can check that out in our uh, insert in the order of, of service. We're thankful to Marilyn Decker, as usual, for the beautiful arrangement of flowers on the communion table this morning. As you'll see in your order of worship, the flowers are given in memory of Sand Lawn, who for many years was our beloved organist and associate director of music. You'll also see that there are some colorful socks there as part of the arrangement uh, because Sand loved colorful socks and was well known for his colorful socks. Uh, and also there's a piece there uh, that Sand composed because he was also a composer. Uh, in the newsletter this past week, D.H. wrote some wonderful remembrances of Sand and I urge you to read that if you haven't already had, had a chance to do so. Uh, if you don't receive the newsletter, you can find it on Northminster's website, uh, where you can also sign up to receive the newsletter via email. And one little memory that D.H. forgot about uh, is that as a student at West Monroe High School, Sand wrote the school's alma mater, and it is still being sung there to this day. Uh, yes, Laura says yes. Uh, and the second hymn today you'll notice that D.H. Wrote, wrote the hymn tune and named it Sand, Far Sand, uh, a, few, a couple of months before Sand's death in, in 2014, uh, a hymn tune to honor Sand. And Sand's ashes are unearned in Northminster's columbarium. And the columbarium will be open after worship today, and if, if you can stand the heat, uh, you're invited to stop by to pay your respects to Sand or perhaps some of our other saints who uh, are in urn there. And as usual, after worship, please feel free to take some of the flowers to, to brighten yours or someone else's week. And as always, check the, uh, the, order of, uh, the insert in the order of worship for other announcements and opportunities or, or check out the newsletter. Now as we worship God together, please join me in the call to worship. We are here together in both body and spirit to worship God who has called us to be a transformational church. We have seen and lived among the many reasons God has called us to be this church. We have seen and lived among injustice, poverty, exclusion, xenophobia, racism, and deep division among brothers and sisters whom God says we should love as ourselves. charge to love is an active imperative. Loving means doing. Loving means working to change things, breaking down barriers, building bridges of hope, and helping to bear one another's burdens. This is God's call. This is God's church. We are all God's hands, feet, and minds on earth. Let us do God's work. 
let us worship God. Corinthians chapter 1. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given to you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ 
has been strengthened among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the partnership of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be knit together in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been made clear to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean, to, what I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Words to the early church that speak to us today. Thank you be to God.
What a great person Sand was. I've just uh, have got to say that, and uh, you might also know him this way. Uh, he had told Judy that every time we were out of town, she was to come back with socks. Um, and she did that. And I want to tell you just one other thing. Um, we always met uh, before coming in here to worship, uh, and we would go over what was being said and, and not said for that time. And every morning, uh, your Sunday morning, I would say, Sand, uh, what, what are you going to play? I don't know. <laughs> and then, and these people can tell you, he came in here and played some of the most beautiful music I've, I've ever heard. And he did it every time. And he would never write it down. But he has blessed us many, many times. Let us say our prayers. O oh God, to be known by you so completely, known in the stark nakedness of our emotions, aspirations, and convictions, known in our formation, our interests, and our devotion, known apart from any cosmetics for whom we are in private as well as in public. O oh God, to be known by you so thoroughly and still loved by you so unconditionally it is to be a little bit fearful, somewhat anxious, at least for a moment and caught somewhere between wanting to run away from you and wanting to stay in your presence forever. You have seen us at our worst and loved us if we always lived at our best. This is sacred truth, God, where we learned it as it was learned on holy ground. And the promise of this reality sustains us daily how can we keep from singing? How could we not love you? Why would we not feel secure with you in every situation? Oh God, we have examined you too. We have looked for your flaws. We have sought evidence that you are an imposter. We have dabbled with life as if you did not exist. But now, now, we praise you. No more tilting at windmills for us, God. No more behaving as if we owned the sky. No more assuming that we can live without you. Know us even better, God. And let us know you even better. 
Know us until you see in the deepest recesses of our hearts a love that will never leave, a commitment to truth that will never be abated, and a resolve to live as the people you created us to be. We praise you, O God. Amen.
For several years, in every church I pastored, I promised that I would never preach a sermon more than once in that church. Now, I didn't think about this uh, until way down the way. But I'm ashamed now. I, I did not realize how egotistical it was for me to make that promise and assume that every member in the congregation would remember every one of my sermons. <laughs> when wiser, I realized that every church has important issues that I need to address, that the pastor needs to address biblically and repetitiously for a church's own good. This morning, I am preaching a sermon that I have preached before in this pulpit, not word for word, but the same scripture passage, sermon title, and subject. And I'm, I'm starting with a story I have told more than once in worship here. Without question, every teacher should listen to this. Without question, the best teaching situation in my life was when I served as the dean and professor of religion in Simmons University in all black school located amid the most grinding poverty in Louisiana. No, not Louisiana, in Kentucky during the late 60s and early 70s. The students there were individuals who had felt a call to ministry apart from an education that was sufficient to do ministry. Without exception, these would be seminarians that reminded me of the people whom Jesus blessed for hungering and thirsting after righteousness. My students were ravenously hungry for learning how to be better thinkers and ministers. I'll never forget a morning in the classroom when a young man who was blind and taking notes in Braille, heard something that I said that was important to him. Spontaneously, he said out loud, Oh, I needed to know that. Listen, any teacher would have been moved by that response. On another day, in the same class, we were discussing the nature of the church, biblically, theologically, administratively, and pragmatically. I could sense that an older gentleman in the class was having trouble with what I was saying. I knew uh, that he wanted to interrupt, and I was right, within a moment or so, 
he blurted out emphatically, I run my church. What do you mean? I I asked him. I had a smile. I I mean just what I said, his voice getting a little louder. Why, just last week, one of my deacons messed up carrying out his assignment in worship, and from my pulpit, I told him, just sit down. I run this church. Who gave you that responsibility? I asked somewhat teasingly. What do you mean, he said defensively. Well, my question is clear, I think. I responded, who gave you the church? Well, the student sat in stunned silence for a moment, uh, and I broke that. I I raised this important question with you because I always have believed that the church belonged to God and that we are servants in it and stewards of it. The, The model for the church was proved by the ministry of Jesus. And that is why I have thought the Bible teaches us or Did I get that wrong? Well, the good-natured exchange of words between the student and me ended with uh, the older man mumbling something. I think he said, Oh, you know what I mean. Yeah. I I knew what he meant. His claim lacked neither clarity nor precedent. In the mind of this student, the church of which he was the pastor, he was also in the head of the church. Now, it's, it's one thing to say with pride, this is our church, speaking proudly. But it's quite another way to say when someone says, this is my church. In my experience, people who assume they own a church and take on the responsibility of running a church are not very wise. Without change, a church that a few people claim to own and to run personally will rather quickly cease to be a church. Even though it may continue to organize, uh, exercise as just another social institution mistaken about its identity. How I, how wished that I could tell you that that minister in my class was an exception rather than a norm in his thoughts, but that was not the case. I I cannot tell you that story without recalling one other story from a few decades back lodged in my brain. One Sunday morning, a New York cab driver 
picked up a man who asked to be driven to Christ Church in the city. Immediately, the cab driver locked, perplexed, and asked, Okay, you must mean you want to go to Dr. Henry Emerson Fosdick's church out on Riverside Drive. Well, no, that's, that's not where I want to go. Well, then you must mean Dr. George Buttrick's Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church on 73rd Street. Again, a, a no rang out from the back seat. Well, surely then you are looking at Dr. Norman Vincent Peale's church, Marble Collegiate Church, the driver said. Well, when the man trying to find Christ Church responded negatively again, the cab driver said in frustration, Sir, honestly, honestly, I didn't know Christ had a church in this city. (laughs) Who owns this church? Who who runs this church? Whose church is it? These are the kinds of questions as old as the people and institution of churches. They provide profound insight into whether an institution that claims to be the church really is a church or just another social group in town. Take note of what happened in the church in Corinth to which the Apostle Paul wrote letters. A congregation formed only a generation after the ministry of Jesus and his teachings about the church, Paul discovered that the church was splintering into competing factions. Different groups of Christians in Corinth had developed different loyalties in different ministers and a variety of control issues related to leadership. Members of the so-called Paul party in the church boasted that they were the only members of the congregation who had been converted under Paul's leadership. We were here at the beginning, they bragged, Why, we heard Paul preach. He knows us by name. We got this church going. We know better than anyone else how to run this church. Another group of people in the Corinthian congregation had become devotees of Apollos, a a Greek leader whose group emphasized wisdom. You easily can guess the ID members of the Apollos party. We hope you don't think uh, we're being boastful. (laughs) But after all, we are the intellectuals of this church, and we are best equipped to lead it. No offense, no offense. Some of the factions in Corinth were 
more argumentative than others, swaggering with meanness, parading as orthodox righteousness. For example, members of the party devoted to the Apostle Peter seriously questioned the authority of Paul to be a leader in the church at all. According to these people, the man from Tarsus was too liberal for these pro-Jewish, anti-Gentile folks disturbed by the new and different people entering the fellowship. I kept insisting, we need to get back to the good old days. We need to get to back when law ruled and a heavy hand and there was not so much talk about loving each other, welcoming strangers, and going on and on about grace. We need to protect a conservative faith like that we find in the ministry of Peter, a a faith endangered by Paul and his emphasis on faith and grace and what he called the greatest of these, love. We are just weary of hearing about love. Well, not not all Bible scholars will agree with what I'm about to say, but I think that in the church at Corinth, there also was a faction known as the Christ Party. Members of this clique used the name of Jesus frequently, exuded religious superiority and Many of them spoke with syrupy piety, a pox on all other parties here. These people said, we are the ones who follow Christ. What in the world had happened in Corinth? The Apostle Paul had called many in that church saints. So what happened to them? The correct answer to those questions of what had gone wrong in Corinth leaps out of the biblical text when that text is read in the original language, that is Koine Greek, in which it was written. If you read it there, look at verse 12, and here's what you see. A repetitious emphasis is readily acknowledged by any reader of the Greek text who who sees a recurring redundancy of the pronoun I. This is what it reads. The first person singular pronoun appears three times in each statement. I, I indeed, I am of Paul. I. I indeed, I am of Apollos. I, I indeed, I, I am of Peter. And it just goes on and on like that. Well, there you have it. The eyes have it. (laughs) Unbridled selfishness, egocentric people had given birth to our question, whose church is it? In other words, to whom does the church in Corinth belong? Some said to Apollos, others said to Peter, still others to Paul, 
you heard it. Well, when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he wasted no time in addressing the central issue facing that Corinthian congregation. In his first sentence, Paul wrote, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And the answer to the pressing question of ownership in Corinth then and and in all churches now is the same. God. It's God's church. The church belongs to God, who in Jesus Christ gave us a model of how people are to live individually and corporately. What's more, through scriptures inspired by God, we are provided specific character traits of a church which, if missing in an institution, is a dead away. It came that institution is not a church. Not even constructing an attractive and highly visible sign out on a board just outside the church doesn't mean that's a church. Paul was angry. He shouted as he wrote and those let question with which we ended that reading this today. Has Christ been divided? So, what do you think? I wonder how you think about Northminster Church. I'm not asking. I'm just saying that. But let me share an example or two of what can be good for us and what cannot be good for us. Every aspect of our corporate life as a church should be shaped by the teachings of Jesus and Christian theology, both of which can be detected by how the congregation displays what Paul called the gifts of the Spirit. This is what's right. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, and self-control. We must be honest with the bad and the good. Every church needs to deal with a a mix of matters that, if not watched carefully, will hurt the church. I've always thought that some of the worst things that happen in churches are efforts to run a church like a business. God forbid. A business focuses on a strong institution. A church focuses on a strong mission. A business seeks monetary profits as a sign of success. A church seeks contributions to its budget to devote that money to specific ministries. A business nurtures leaders who are good supervisors and managers 
a church nurtures servants the quality of whose leadership is directly proportionate to their compassion, their compassion involvement and support of others. A business wants a year-end profit to build a reserve fund. A church is at its best when it is giving away money. Business looks at a balance sheet. A church looks at its compliance with the Beatitudes. Business hires workers for all kinds of responsibilities. Churches call ministers to be ministers within the church, equipped with scriptures and leadership and grace. Now, another issue, the, the first book I ever wrote that I was, it was published in 1974, and it was entitled Profile of a Christian Citizen. The book was released at a very difficult time. It was somewhat like the time we're in now, only we're worse off than it was then. At this moment, our country needs churches that know what Christian citizenship is and displays it. We have done that before, right here. In this room, we have done that before. And we can do it again. And we should be doing it again. I cherish the democracy in our land and its commitment to religious freedom, but, but I must say about political decisions the same thing that I said about business. Knowing the difference between our government and our religion is critical. Don't get them mixed up. Many churches, this one included, who in business meetings make decisions by votes. And honestly, most of us have. And that has worked very well for most of us. But never think that a church can decide what is moral and what is not moral in the church. God makes that decision. God's church leadership is defined by servanthood. Its membership is inclusive and its Decision-making should be others, not us, oriented. That principle is applicable individually and cooperatively. Regularly, we must look at our financial plan and our program of ministries to see if either is more about us than about others. If we are spending more money to satisfy our own interests and needs, then we are the help of others, then we quickly need to take a look at what's happening. Remember the damage that happened in Corinth 
by people so absorbed in their own egos and personal preferences that they couldn't think of the community's needs and God's preferences. Defined by the teachings of Jesus, the best prospects for a church are the people most in need of forgiveness, healing, a community of grace, and often monetarily assisting. Jesus said he came to heal the sick, not those already well. As for church members, those whom God invites among us, we best accept to fellowship and relate to in love. In Northminster Church, we speak of all of our members as ministers. If we ever quit listening for God's guidance with a positive response and decide to guide the church in the basis of our opinions, our prejudices, we will remain in an interesting endeavor with really good people, but we will cease to be a church despite what we call ourselves or print on the sign out front. Who owns Northminster Church? If the instinctive answer to that question cites any identity other than God, change must happen rapidly. However, as long as the answer to that question is God, this is God's church. And we are trying to do church God's way. Ah, we have not only a future, but great potential and wonderful promise. Amen. to remember, to 
was on the night in which he was betrayed. That Jesus took bread and he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. And in the same manner after supper, he took the cup. And pouring the cup, he said, 